Hello everyone. Welcome to this special event on what do we need for a gender sensitive COVID-19 response in agriculture and food security, insights from research and practice. This is part of IFPRI's COVID-19 virtual event series. You can find more on IFPRI's COVID resources, analyses, and numerous blogs at our COVID spotlight page at www.ifpri.org or Google IFPRI and COVID-19. I'm Laura Zaleski, Program Manager in the Director General's Office at IFPRI, and I'll be moderating this event. We'd like to thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching the recording after the event. If you're viewing this event on ifpre.org, live captioning is available below the video in English, Spanish, French, Simplified Chinese, and Russian. You can click on the green arrow in the box to the right to scroll across to the languages selection box. We're eager to hear from you, so to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations, please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIFPRI on Twitter. For our friends in the media, if you have specific queries or questions, please feel free to contact our media team. Their contact details are on ifpre.org. Now we have an exciting program lined up for you, and we'd like to call first on John McDermott, Director of the CGIAR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health, who will present brief opening remarks. So over to you, John. Thank you, Laura, and welcome everyone. Um, there have been concerted efforts to improve gender equity and women's empowerment in recent years, and they have made important gains. Um, one of the things we've learned as this has been happening is the multiple benefits of these efforts on a wide range of development outcomes, better nutrition and health, uh, better education, and just better development outcomes from community level all the way through to international levels. Now today we're very lucky to have a group of leaders, researchers, donors, program implementers who have actively contributed to this progress in gender equity and women's empowerment in recent years. And um, this has all been a, you know, a good news story that needs to continue, but unfortunately we're in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic. And that has led to kind of unprecedented shocks across societies, health shocks, economic shocks, household livelihood shocks. And these are putting kind of unprecedented strains on social relationships, household dynamics, um, and I think it's almost inevitable that we're going to see some regression in terms of imp in the improvements we've seen in gender equity and women's empowerment. Um, so where are we going to go from here? Well, it's very important, I think, in this, in this meeting and, and further on to discuss how we're going to mitigate the negative effects of COVID on gender equity in the short term, in this crisis response period, which it's very important, but then quickly move on to repairing things during a recovery phase and getting back to the positive trajectory of better gender equity, empowering women, which we're seeing all kinds of benefits across society. So this is crucial and uh, I'm really looking forward to our speakers and today's events. So back to you, Laura. Thank you so much, John. 
Our first speaker is Agnes Kisumbing, Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI. So Agnes, we'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Laura, for the introduction and good day to everyone who's joining us. I'm going to talk about how we can use what we've learned in previous crises and pandemics to come up with a gender sensitive response to the COVID-19 crisis. Crises and pandemics are certainly not new and it's not surprising that when large scale crises happen, they, they tend to affect the already vulnerable and make it worse for them. So during the 2007 to 2008 food price crisis and the HIV AIDS pandemic, my IFPRI colleagues and I tried to unpack how these crises hit women and men differently. What's different about COVID-19, I must say, is that people are paying attention to gendered impacts much earlier than, than they did in the food price crisis. Next slide, please. So, when the food price crisis hit in 2007-2008, we expected that they would affect rural households. My colleague Neha Kumar and I went back to rural households in Ethiopia that we had interviewed before, um, just before the food price shock, and we went back again. We found that households that reported experiencing a food price shock ate less preferred foods, cut back quantities served to adult males and females, and did not reduce quantity served to boys and girls. But in households that were headed by women, they did cut back quantity served to adults, males and females. They reduced quantities served to boys and girls. So it was much worse in female headed households. Next slide, please. One thing, however, is that context matters because gender is a very context specific um, thing. It's, it really varies by culture and society. You can't expect that impacts are going to be the same everywhere. So in Indonesia, Futoshi Yamauchi found that during the food, same food price crisis, household heads protected nutritionally vulnerable members and there was no gender difference. Uh, next slide, please. Now the lessons from the HIV AIDS pandemic are I think quite instructive for us. Um, Sunita Kadiala and others, including myself, looked at the, imp the impact of prime age adult mortality in Ethiopia. And what she found was that living in a household with prime age adult mortality increased child mortality significantly. But this hit girls more than boys. So girls, more girls died than boys proportionally. Bereaved children also grew one third of its standard deviation less than similar non-bereaved children. Next slide, please. The thing that's quite different though between COVID and HIV AIDS is the age group that's being hit. So COVID-19 mortality is tending to occur among older adults, which is a different age pattern than HIV AIDS. And this means that there is a loss of the caregiving generation. So many of these grandfathers and grandmo grandmothers especially were the ones taking care of children as their daughters went and worked. So if the caregiving population is killed off, it dies proportionate, disproportionately, you may see a negative effect on women's labor force participation you know, after the, the shutdown measures are, are, are lifted. The other thing that's quite important to know, and we saw this in HIV AIDS, is that if COVID-19 mortality affects men more, widowed women tend to be worse off when their inheritance and land rights are not secure. 
And we find this in a lot of developing countries which don't have good legal protection for women. Next slide, please. So one question we ask is that, is a cure worse than the disease? One thing we learned in studying the long-term impact of shocks is that these shocks can have long-term consequences and the consequences often happen because of the way we cope with the shock. So um, Neha Kumar, Julia Berman and I looked at what happened to households in Bangladesh and Uganda and how they cope with the food price shock as well as other shocks which are happening. So we found that in Bangladesh, households that were experiencing a food price shock protected jointly held land and assets, but not individually owned assets. So they sacrificed men's and women's assets. However, if there was an illness shock, this really attacked women's assets. Women's assets were the first to be disposed of if there was an illness shock. In Uganda, households that experienced a food price shock protected the husband's assets, but not the wives or jointly held assets. So what this means is that in different societies, depending on the gender norms around asset ownership, someone's assets may be the first to go, and it's usually the woman's assets. Next slide, please. So if women's assets are the first to be disposed of during a shock, there are very serious implications for her future livelihoods and for her bargaining power within the household because asset ownership is a very key predictor of inter-household bargaining power. Um, next slide, please. So we've seen that the impacts of shocks are gendered. What this means is that policy responses must likewise be gendered. Um, gendered norms are context specific, so we don't expect a one size fits all solution. Some options, however, that have worked in many settings is targeting cash transfers to women to smooth consumption, a gender sensitive form of social protection. We could have insurance programs that help women preserve their asset base and then help them build up their assets during the recovery. We need to pay attention to the care economy because women's caregiving rules are often undervalued and undercounted. We also need to pay attention to men's vulnerabilities. So as employment drops, as migrants come home, men are feeling a lot of stress too, and this often plays out in domestic violence. Um, we need to enable girls to stay in school, to avoid early marriage, and other long-term and intergenerational consequences. Next slide, please. What I'd like to say, though, is that a lot of you are, going, are listening in today are practitioners in the field. I truly believe that the innovations and solutions are going to come from the field. Um, Grassroots Kenya, for example, started out as a women's collective pro providing care after the HIV AIDS pandemic. It's now a really large NGO. Our partners here today will talk about what they're doing and what, we're going to, what we can do is find out what they're doing, learn from them. Their action is going to inform the research Research in turn will generate evidence to inform action to cope with pandemics and other shocks. Thank you very much. Over to you. Thank you so much, Agnes. Our next presenter is Rima Nanavati, Director of the Self-Employed Women's Association, or SEWA. Over to you, Rima. Good evening, good morning to everyone. And it's been a great uh, privilege to be on this panel and also being a partner of BIFPRI. Um, today, what I'm going to speak here or share is on behalf of the 2 million uh, poor but extremely hardworking 
uh, women members of SEWA uh, who are currently experiencing health pandemic and also economic um, pandemic. Let me say what Rami Ben told me before I was coming here to be on the panel. And she said that I've been working hard during doing multiple jobs all these years, farming, farm labor, animal husbandry, just so that I can feed my family uh, enough. But with this COVID-19 pandemic has snatched away even the last morsel of food from our mouth. I do not know how will I feed my family. Just because we are poor, we do not have the right to survive and live. This is the large question that we all ought to answer as a response to COVID-19. And this is the story of millions of women workers in the let me tell you what Jignasha Ben, a vegetable vendor organizer, was sharing yesterday. That I just could not sleep the whole night because I could keep hearing the screams of my fellow sister Minakshi, who was tested positive for COVID-19. And she was taken away to the hospital, leaving behind her nine-month-old daughter. I just was tossing and turning the whole night so that early morning I could call up and find out. And when I called her, she said that, I have good news, my daughter is here with me in the hospital, but the bad news is that my nine-month-old also tested positive for COVID. This is the reality of the informal sector women workers. How will they survive? That's the question. The small farmers in our country, after two bad years of um, cropping, where had very bountiful harvest. As Shantiben was saying, I was looking at my uh, field with golden wheat, and that meant that you know it was a bountiful harvest, a lot. And there came the lockdown as a result of COVID-19, and I felt like as if I was a thief going into my field. And then there was the hailstorm, a climate shock. So the harvest, which was going to be bountiful, was reduced to only 40% or 50%. Even if the harvest was there, the markets were closed. Where to, and therefore, it compounded the anxiety of repaying the old debt. Uh, how do I borrow for the new crop, cropping season? And the men, as Agnes was saying, the men were under a lot of stress and anxiety. They could not go out to work. They always have one or the other, um, you know, addiction. They cannot go out. They need money. There was no money. There was no income. And therefore, women became victims of anger, abuse, and violence. Let me tell you, but everything is not bad. We also believe that how do you turn a disaster also into an opportunity? We immediately <clears throat> sent out uh, an appeal to the national government and to the state governments to, to immediately declare minimum support prices for the crops, arrange for local procurement at the village itself so that the farmers do not have to be in distress. 
uh, provide seeds so that they can start preparing for the next season. The government of India announced a package and therefore our, our response was that to make sure that every farmer got the 2000 rupees in their bank account. And how do you plunge into alternative livelihoods? Can we look at food processing, agro-processing, converting coarse grains into bakery products, into snacks, and that's how some source of income started coming into the households. Um, we also started connecting the vegetable growers with the vegetable vendors in the city, and that gave birth to a new enterprise. And in just 35 days, we were able to sell worth 200,000 rupees and a net income to the vegetable farmers, their returns, and to the vendors. Um, let me tell you something about the food system and the food security as well. The world food system today has become so complex that trying to understand it through common sense raises many questions. If access to safe, nutritious food is a fundamental right, why are millions of people living in hunger today? Why do farmers and farm workers who produce food remain starved or half starved? Why are people in food exporting countries living in hunger? Something is fundamentally wrong in our methods of ensuring that no one goes to bed hungry. My point is that food has a sense uh, of belonging, a sense of locality and hope. Food is many layered. Food goes from cosmos to livelihood, from rural to from ritual to myth, and it is a life's culture. Therefore, food must not be reduced to just security. We have to look at holistic food systems. Farming was the beginning of human civilization. And today in India and Africa, the life of a farmer is being threatened. To protect food security, we must protect the base of agriculture, the small farmers and their produce. For COVID has to be is innovation plus. plus. Uh, innovation is a means of coping and survival for the small farm holders. So how do we look at innovation plus plus? What the farmers need today is a agriculture recovery fund that safeguards them both from climate shocks as well as market shocks. Poor do not want charity. What they want is an enabling environment which helps them to rebuild their farming, rebuild their livelihoods. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rima. I'd like to remind everyone watching online that you can submit your brief questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. We'll be coming to the Q&A session soon. Our next speaker is Maureen Maruka, Director of Gender, Youth, and Livelihoods and Food and Water Systems at CARE USA. Over to you, Maureen. Uh, thank you, Laura. Um, I'd like to go through uh, three uh, areas in which um, we are focusing at CARE um, with regards to the um, 
uh, to the COVID-19 uh, uh, crisis and uh, gender equality. And the first one really is that we have to put gender equality at the center of the response. Uh, why? Uh, because Agnes has gone through some of the statistics that we have. Um, in Africa, you find that women carry out at least 3.4 times more unpaid uh, care work. Uh, they are the primary producers of at least 70% uh, of Africa's foods. And uh, we've also seen recent stats showing us that 70% of frontline uh, healthcare responders are women, and that increases their care uh, burden. And of course, the fact that women-headed households are most likely to suffer from a food crisis uh, because 60% of the hungry people and 76% of displaced people in the world are women and uh, girls. And so I'm based in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. I'm Kenyan myself. And um, part of the initial response to the COVID crisis was, of course, to uh, close um, the open-air markets um, in the, uh, you know, by, by local uh, governments. And these are the markets uh, that really women engage. This is where they buy their food, and this is where they sell uh, their produce. And then there was also cessation of uh, transport between, of movement between the urban areas and, and the rural areas. Um, and then a few days after that, um, uh, food transporters were allowed to move their, um, uh, you know, their, their produce around so that, uh, the, you know, there's continuous food supply. But what happens to such um, initiatives when you formalize markets is, again, that women are displaced um, uh, from that system um, in terms of um, uh, because these are largely <coughs> male-dominated uh, but around also the COVID crisis and the, the, and the initial responses, it was the rainfall uh, season uh, in Kenya, the long rain season. And we know that most of our production systems where women engage again are rain-fed agricultural systems. And I kept asking myself, how are they going to get the inputs? Because we already know the challenges that women have faced before in accessing inputs, um, in accessing other productive uh, uh, resources. And so... Part of the bigger response when we kept asking ourselves where, how are women going to play in this space? How are people with other vulnerabilities going to be able to do this? Care, care as part of the bigger response. Um, actually, this is the largest humanitarian response I have seen, uh, you know, since I joined care um, in over 60 uh, countries that we work in. Out of this, we have currently um, done 51 rapid gender analysis, which are going to inform our response, uh, you know, to the crisis. And as we know, a rapid gender analysis uh, takes us through the different needs, the capacities, uh, and the coping strategies of of, of individuals of all gender and their intersecting uh, vulnerabilities and provide, uh, provides us with information about how women, girls and, and, and men and boys uh, are coping. But of course, due to the nature of emergencies, then you realize that a rapid gender analysis initially gives us information that we, we have to continue uh, updating. Uh, and an initial analysis of gender relations in an emergency. And uh, a lot of this has been also informed by CARE's response uh, to the Ebola and, and, and Zika uh, uh, crisis. So the rapid agenda analysis is informing our programming. Um, we are working together with uh, our partners, our donors in, in, in respective uh, countries and globally to inform our interventions in the agriculture sector. 
also because we are a leader in this space and um, uh, I mean speakers have uh, alluded um, to the gender-based violence um, that is occurring. Uh, CARE is also has, uh, has launched a large operation in over 24 countries uh, right now where we are working with local uh, leaders ensuring that they and our staff and other partners have the information and the referral information that they need, that we are collecting the right data and that women are also uh, taking leadership and then it is also being informed uh, by the rapid gender analysis I talked about and also that the rapid gender analysis it is informing that gender-based violence uh, uh, operations and as we know in the agriculture sector because of household food allocation, household income allocation from the agriculture sector, that can also lead to escalated uh, cases of gender-based violence and that is why it is relevant uh, for the agriculture uh, sector. The second area we are intervening in the ag sector is to say um, farmers and especially women must have access to agricultural productive resources and markets and I specifically want to talk about inputs uh, information uh, as a resource because it is the it is the only way that we are going to uh, bridge the social distancing, the social distance, uh, the physical distance that is caused, uh, you know, by the crisis. But we also know that the gender gap in the use of technology is wide, uh, in, in more, both in mobile ownership and up to 42% in access to the internet uh, uh, for women. And I think this is one thing that uh, our colleagues in research can really, you know, try to look at how has the technology divide uh, really played during uh, the COVID uh, crisis. So in care again, we are working through the village savings and loans uh, associations, which are the collectives or the groups that we work with uh, to ensure that farmers and, and through farmer leaders, again, the groups can access uh, information. Uh, Care Kenya specifically through uh, in their hunger safety net uh, program are working with, with these leaders. But again, we have to emphasize the role of leadership for women, that if we have women leaders in the groups, then they're going to be able to get the information themselves and, and pass it to the other, uh, um, you know, to the other farmers or, you know, in their groups. And so I really want to emphasize the role of information and the role of groups and collectives and the role of women's leadership in the collectives and in other decision-making uh, organs uh, uh, around the COVID uh, crisis. Lastly, uh, my third point is that safety nets should be scaled up uh, for access to sufficient and nutritious food. They have to be gender responsive and they have to take into consideration um, the six uh, food groups because most of them are mostly carbohydrate based and also that cash transfers again have to take um, into consideration asset ownership between men and women in households as well as the decision uh, making dynamics and the power uh, relations. Thank you so much. Thank you Maureen. Our next speaker is Meredith Sewell, Inclusive Development Division Chief with the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at the United States Agency for International Development. Over to you, Meredith. Good morning. Um, thank you, and I'm very glad to be here um, with this group to speak today. Um, no, you can move to the next slide, please. I'm going to start off speaking about COVID-19 priorities um, for the U.S. government, USAID, and then for agriculture and food security. In this unprecedented time, the U.S. government is focused on delivering a comprehensive package of service to support our international partners around the world in addressing COVID-19. 
USAID and the State Department have committed more than a billion dollars in new resources to assist partner countries in the response. And this builds on the US government's longstanding investments in global health, food security, and humanitarian assistance, which has created the foundation for today's response. We're quickly deploying and delivering, <coughs> excuse me, um, essential support to those most in need to save lives and reduce secondary impacts of the pandemic. USAID's priorities in the response are to protect safety and health for our global workforce and support partner countries in their response to COVID-19. The point on this, addressing the secondary economic impacts is particularly important for agriculture and food security and women. We are seeing that the impact of food systems is not primarily a result of the virus. Rather, we see that the mitigation efforts to curb the spread of the virus are what's causing disruptions in the production, availability, and affordability of safe, nutritious food. So to respond to these secondary impacts, we are currently focused on first adapting our current food security and assistance programming, then protecting development gains and planning for the long term, and ensuring we take an inclusive approach. COVID-19 has the potential to exacerbate the marginalization and discrimination already experienced by women and a wide range of marginalized groups. USAID and its implementing partners are actively seeking to consult with these groups to ensure that responses are inclusive and do not place such groups at increased risk of discrimination and violence or negative health or economic outcomes. Facilitating the equitable engagement of all people helps ensure as many people as possible are able to play critical roles in preventing, mitigating, and responding to COVID-19 and safeguarding development gains for all. Next slide, please. As we speak, COVID-19 is impacting food systems with potentially devastating consequences in many of the countries where we work. In response, RFS, the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security, along with USAID missions, has focused on first predicting the impact based on previous experiences, such as Ebola and the food price crisis, as Agnes spoke about, to use those lessons and then learning what is actually happening on the ground through rapid assessments, focus groups, phone surveys, et cetera, that we heard about from Maureen and Claudia will also be speaking about, and then rapid response through new guidance and flexing our existing activities in the field, as well as programming new resources. Each of these activities, prediction, learning, and response should be informed by gender analysis and the collection and use of sex disaggregated data. It's been projected that the number of people globally living in extreme poverty will increase by more than 140 million from the pandemic. And we know that many of them will be women as already 60% of people living in hunger are women. And the multiple factors that have already been highlighted by the other speakers are coming together to increase poverty for women if we don't take concerted action, such as women carrying out more unpaid and domestic work, having reduced mobility and reduced access to markets, and being overrepresented in informal work. And at the same time, as we heard the economic distress, both for women, men, and all household members, also challenges traditional gender norms and increases the stress within the household, resulting in increased gender-based violence. We also know that hard-fought-for gains in improved nutrition for infants and young children and pregnant and lactating women are at great risk due to disruptions in livelihoods, health systems, and social protection programs. Next slide, please. 
So with that framing in mind, I now like to talk about our response priorities. First, in terms of our discussion today, we must prioritize inclusion of gender, but also youth and young women in all marginalized groups. Within the other res response priorities you see on the slide, we can prioritize gender um, by training policy actions that recognize and address the potential impacts of mobility and border restrictions on female traders who constitute 50 to 75% of informal traders across borders in Africa, by sustaining local production, by helping ensure all producers, including women, have access to seeds and other inputs, by keeping markets, SMEs, and jobs going, informed by the local context through community consultations done in a safe way that include women and their leaders and respond to their specific challenges, needs, and preferences as vendors, consumers, and actors within the private sector. We will increase access to finance for SMEs, for example, by offering softer terms, including extended repayment periods, lower interest rates, credit lines for informal or small-scale producers and vendors, or outright loan forgiveness in some cases. These measures will be particularly critical for supporting women-owned and led SMEs access to finance. And we'll build resilience at all levels by understanding and programming for the needs of all, including specific needs of women, by listening to their voices and building on their leadership. And we'll also safeguard access to safe and nutritious foods by linking with humanitarian efforts to protect and increase food and cash social protection programming expanding production and distribution of fortified foods, and supporting increased local production and trade with a focus on the needs of women. Within these priorities, we also know that improved digital access for women also has a large role to play. USAID just released its new digital strategy, which prioritizes closing the gender digital divide, which has come at a very opportune time as we must ensure that women get the same access to COVID-19 response information and opportunities as men, as much as this information will be shared digitally to reduce contact. In sum, we must recognize that the burden that COVID-19 is placing on women and girls, but also the strengths they bring to solutions if we listen to their needs and support their leadership. Thank you. Thank you so much, Meredith. Our next speaker is Claudia Ringler, Deputy Director of the Environment and Production Technology Division at IFPRI. So we'll turn it over to you, Claudia. Thank you very much and welcome again to everyone. This last contribution focuses on tools to understand and strengthen women's empowerment, a key well-being goal that is squarely affected by COVID-19. And you've all heard a little bit about women's empowerment already. Next slide, please. There are three types of gender-sensitive development programs that will all come into play during COVID-19 recovery and relief operations. Those that attempt to reach women, those that attempt to benefit women, and those that aim at empowering women. The strategies and activities differ for each of these objectives. And to ensure that we have made a difference as intended, we need to monitor changes in women's outcomes. For example, a COVID-19 agricultural relief intervention on irrigation for kitchen gardens that aims to reach women should monitor how many women have received extension advice or the irrigation technology. If the program intends to benefit women, then we would need to collect sex disaggregated yield data on kitchen plots and monitor women's and men's time use and changes in income. 
If the intervention, however, aims to empower women, then we need to understand if irrigation improved women's decision-making power, their asset base, and their ability to make strategic life choices. Next slide, please. To fully understand how women's and men's empowerment in agriculture is affected by COVID-19 and how empowerment might help women and men manage COVID-19 and other interlinked shocks, we can use the Women's Empowerment and Agriculture Index tool that you can see in its Provea version on this slide. The Provea includes 12 indicators that reflect three dimensions of empowerment. These are seen in the outer ring here. Intrinsic agency or power within, instrumental agency or power to, and collective agency or power with. Unfortunately, we cannot just monitor a single indicator to know how women and men fare during the crisis. All 12 indicators of empowerment are affected by COVID-19 and some might move in different directions. Importantly, we do not know a priori if it is men or women who face increased disempowerment as a result of COVID. As an example, in Nepal, many male migrants try to return from India having lost their income. Their wives who took care of the farm might similarly have lost their ability to farm because inputs stopped arriving, produce could not be sold, or the lockdown prevented them from hiring labor. Both have lost income and face mobility constraints. When the men finally return, there might be domestic violence as tensions tend to rise during crisis, increasing violence and acceptance of violence, an important VIA indicator reflected in this uh, graph. Whose assets will be sold first after income runs out and debts need to be repaid is a further important VIA indicator that can take a long time to recover for women, as uh, Agnes already told us. If women had collective agency, that is, they were members in groups before COVID started, they might be able to get financial support through their fellow group members, such as we heard from Seva ensuring that women are linked to such groups during and after the crisis is also a key recovery and relief mechanism. The index points to other important entry points for recovery for both women and men, such as increasing the access to mobile phones for women to substitute for in-person visits of health services. Uh, Meredith pointed out the importance of addressing the gender digital divide here. Such phones could also provide access to financial services, which is a further important VIA indicator, or they can provide information on fertilizer supplies that women might have lost because they can't go out anymore. And finally, these devices could transmit important COVID-19 information. Some Western countries have actually provided smartphones to vulnerable women and the homeless. Finally, any recovery and relief program should be careful about implications for women's time use, given that women, as we've already heard today, have spent on average more hours working and caring before COVID-19, very likely during COVID-19 as well. Thus, the irrigation for kitchen garden intervention I mentioned at the beginning should reduce their workload. It is surprising how many technologies are still provided in relief operations that do the opposite. To some, the WEA tool can be used to understand how women's and men's empowerment is affected by COVID-19 and can help us identify short, 
medium and longer term relief and recovery options. This requires, however, that we keep monitoring how the various indicators are shifting over time as a result of the health crisis and other compounding shocks. Next slide, please. How does IFPRI try to understand changes in women's and men's empowerment in agriculture as a result of COVID-19? IFPRI implements or plans to implement a series of phone surveys that focus on key gendered issues in up to 21 countries. We also plan to and would like to work with grassroots organizations such as SEVA includes Kenya on behavior change communication to reduce COVID-19 spread, as we know that these are very effective organizations. We also plan to assess women's access to health services during COVID-19 and girls' return to education post-COVID-19 due to the crucial intergenerational impacts. We also work with development partners to, to identify relief and rebuilding opportunities in the agricultural space. And we want to follow up with respondents and impact evaluations to see whether women's empowerment helped them weather the COVID storm. Thank you very much and back to Laura. Thank you so much, Claudia. We're going to now turn to Jo Swinnen, Director General of IFPRI, who will offer brief closing comments before our Q&A session. So over to you, Jo. Thank you very much, Laura. Um, I think this was a great panel with many excellent, I mean, several excellent presentations and many uh, interesting insights, I think. I definitely also want to thank uh, Agnes and Claudia and her colleagues for organizing the panel and the other speakers for coming here and being with us today and sharing their insights. Um, there have been, <clears throat> I'm sorry, um, I'm not going to try to summarize the, um, what has been said. I would think there was too many things uh, raised. Uh, the issues were too rich to summarize just in two minutes. Just a couple of points. I mean, we already knew that COVID-19 impacts and also the lockdown impacts as a result of COVID-19 uh, are very heterogeneous. They're heterogeneous. Uh, they affect young people differently than old people, household with children differently from household with no children. They affect uh, different food systems differently and different value chains, etc. I think what one thing which is very clear from all the presentations today, they also affect men and women differently. But as Agnes mentioned, I mean, it's also context specific, right? And so that basically creates challenges for the policy response. It is clear from all the presentations that our uh, COVID policy should take into account these gender differences, should be gender specific, but also take into account uh, context in developing these things. Uh, one point I also uh, remember from Agnes's presentation and which actually came through in, in several of the others as well is that there seems to be more early attention to gender issues in the COVID-19 crisis than there was an earlier crisis and I think this is uh, something to build upon. Um, I also think maybe uh, to push this a bit further we should move from, uh, we are now clearly uh, thinking moving from crisis management, okay, so how to design policies, reactions, programs to design with the crisis from more medium-term reactions because we really don't know how long this uh, crisis is going to last. And I think there, there are also several opportunities, okay, if we see that things which are now being implemented to deal with the crisis, uh, with the sh let's short and medium-run things, but really benefit women, then I think this is an opportunity as well to basically turn them into something more sustainable, longer term, which also may create to a, a better future in, in the long term. I think there is the opportunity that crisis may offer as well. I, I will leave it at this. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Yo. At this point, we're going to move to the Q&A portion of the program. So we'd like to hear from as many of you as we can. Um, I'll ask you to please be brief in your questions when you type them in the chat box or use the hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter. And I'll ask, also ask our respondents to be brief so we can fit in as many questions as we can. Um, and when you're sending a question, please feel free to share your name and institution if you wish. I'll read one question at a time and the relevant speaker will respond. Um, but please note that in some cases and in the interest of time, we might have to consolidate some of these questions. So I'm going to start with um, a first question that I'll direct to Rima and um, Maureen. Maybe you can speak from your experience and what you're seeing on the ground. This question is from Eileen Nchanji uh, from Bioversity International and SIAT. And Eileen asks, um, are the gender gains we made on women's entrepreneurship regressing with the COVID pandemic? And what more can we do to reduce effects for informal women entrepreneurs? So Rima, maybe you'd like to start with your perspective and then we'll turn over to Maureen. Rima, over to you. Thank you. Uh, I was going to say this in my closing remarks, but um, closing question, but maybe I'll, uh, good that she, uh, Irene asked the question. And I think women entrepreneurs and women-owned collective enterprises have really played a very significant role during the COVID crisis. Rudy, our agribusiness initiative, um, which reached out to the affected households because they were the Rudy Benz, the saleswomen were right on the ground. And therefore, a woman, a Rudy saleswoman who was selling maybe 50,000 rupees a month was able to sell 50,000 rupees a week. It looks like we're having some. Oh. Also played a very major role. So I think um, as far as the women enterprises and women entrepreneurs are concerned, um, they knew exactly what the need of the households, especially of the women, were on the ground. And that's where they became very um, relevant and addressed the needs making of masks, making detergents, making food packets, making snacks, all this. And that's how, you know, the income to the families continued. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rima. Maureen, would you like to share anything from your perspective? Uh, yes, actually, I think women-owned businesses and women entrepreneurs are definitely going to take a hit, uh, you know, from COVID, even right within the agribusiness um, uh, sector, because as Rima actually mentioned, even in Kenya and other East African countries and countries around, the migrant workers are moving to the rural areas and displacing women uh, from the agricultural um, setup where they owned um, decision-making control of um, the, the incomes from agriculture and and uh, and, and the assets um, but what we need to, to 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 continue to do first of all is to collect that data and then secondly um, work around interventions that can ensure that women have access to information even very um, obvious and information that might seem basic uh, in Kenya the mobile phone companies especially Safaricom uh, brought down all the mobile uh, transaction uh, charges but it is one thing for that to be put in place and it is the other thing uh, for women entrepreneurs 
entrepreneurs uh, to know that they can use um, that facility, uh, you know, to be able to uh, to get the maximum profits uh, from their their businesses. So I still continue to emphasize the information and technology, and probably also looking at you know lower tech, uh, digital technology that um, you know women can easily access to boost their businesses. Great, thank you so much, Rima and Maureen. Uh, the next question I'm going to direct to Agnes. This question is from Jim, Jemima Njuki from the International Development Research Center. She said, Agnes has mentioned the issue of addressing masculinity during the pandemic. Do we know what approaches are working to do this and how these can be amplified? Agnes, do you want to speak on this? Sure. Um, thanks for the question, Jemima. Um, I think we know relatively little about how to deal with masculinity when we're faced with a really huge shock like this. Um, a lot there has been programming developed in sort of in normal times about teaching um, men and women how to how to work together to ensure better nutrition and how to work together within the household, like the household methodologies approach. But um, I'm not I'm I'm not aware of Agnes, if you could move your microphone closer. Yeah, there we go. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm not sure of any or I'm not aware of any wide scale or documented effort which is trying to build this type of um, teamwork in, in, you know, in a pandemic response. However, what I will say is that in, um, in the programs that I know of that have worked, um, targeting messages to both husband and wife, to, to the, the woman and her partner, really helps so that, no, so that they're all on the same page, that they're not excluded. So in many cases, it might tell the husband, you know, um, give your wife some support in her caregiving task. Don't leave the caregiving only to her. Um, and and in, other, in other cases where, for example, if information is being delivered through mobile phone and the husband is the one who owns the phone, um, we may give him some, some encouragement to share phone news or to pass on the message, etc. But um, frankly, for me, this is a very new area of work, and I'm really eager to learn from what people are doing on the ground. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Agnes. Um, the next question I'm going to direct to Claudia. This question is from Vita Hanifa of the Ministry of Agriculture in Indonesia. Uh, the question is, what is the difference between gender-sensitive action and those that, that are not gender-sensitive, and what is the key sign to see the difference? Claudia, would you like to speak on this a bit? Yeah, thanks. I mean, that's really the crucial question here. Um, gender sensitive action basically considers um, the difference, different needs and requirements of women and men re regarding a specific intervention. I mean, I, I mentioned an example of irrigation for kitchen gardens. So already women are more likely to have some control over kitchen gardens or control over the produce of a kitchen garden. So if I'm gender sensitive, I'll don't just talk to the household head and say, you know, which plot do you want to see irrigated? You actually talk to both the woman and, the, and, and her husband, and you will then actually learn that they uh, have different decision, uh, decision spaces and different management roles over different plots. And again, it's very context specific. So basically considering the needs and um, the abilities and the skills and the operating space of both women and men is, is a key distinction of making any intervention gender sensitive. A, a, a new gender blind um, intervention would be you know, that you just assume talking to one member of the household takes care uh, of all of the household needs. And the 
um, reach benefit empowerment framework basically goes a little bit further um, because now a lot of programs have started to to say okay we are reaching them and we, we make sure they participate in training activities we are trying to make sure that they get the information but as we are trying to say is that that's still only a very first step and doesn't necessarily benefit women and doesn't necessarily empower them but we, if we has a lot of materials um, if you just you know, type in gender, um, you'll find a lot of uh, guidance documents on how to ensure that interventions are gender sensitive. Great, thank you so much, Claudia. I'm going to direct the next question to Meredith. This question is from Adekunle Adelani from Renaklip Foundation in Nigeria. Um, the question is, can making COVID-19 gender sensitive influence the control of the outbreak? Um, you spoke a little bit about secondary impacts, and I wonder if you have anything um, uh, to contribute in response to this question. Over to you, Meredith. Yeah, thank you. It's, a, I think, a very good question. I think definitely, as we would see in any activity, if you bring in the views of the widest group of people possible, including the voices of women and the marginalized, you are going to have different outcomes than you would have otherwise. And I think particularly as the things we've talked about today, that women have such large roles in caregiving and um, trading and in um, producing food and also acquiring that food for their family in many cases that it's so important to hear what their concerns are so that they can be addressed and that also that those are being raised to the highest levels in policy making. So, thank you. Great, thank you, Meredith. Um, this is a question I'm going to direct back to uh, Maureen and Rima again. I'll call on Maureen first at this time and then Rima. This is from Karen Duca, um, the International Affairs Specialist at USAID. And her question is, could the panelists address some of the unexpected positive elements that the crisis has engendered? For example, I'm hearing that in some communities, seamstresses are stepping up to make free masks for community members and gaining greater voice within their communities. Um, I think there were some examples mentioned earlier, but um, if you have other uh, examples you'd like to share or things you're seeing on the ground, we'll start with Maureen. Um, yes, I think the crisis has um, given us an opportunity to see the role of women in leadership. <laughs> I think it's obvious around the world we have seen the countries where we have our women leaders have had uh, better uh, responses. And I think that is going to send messages across to women's leadership at all levels, right from grassroots, um, um, you know, to mid-level and to higher political, uh, you know, positions. And so, as I said in care, we work through a collective such as the village savings and loans associations. Um, we need to get more data to show how women's leadership has played out in this, but I do think this is one of the, of, of the areas that um, uh, is a positive uh, spin-off from how uh, women can lead in uh, crisis. Thank you, Maureen. Rima, would you like to add anything from your perspective? I'm sure I have a long list, but I would just limit it. Uh, I think uh, every disaster also brings opportunities. And I think some of the positive things that you see is women immediately starting to make masks and um, you know giving it in the communities, but women also becoming business correspondents of the banks. 
so that you know the women are able to withdraw money from their accounts women are able to deposit money in their accounts so a lot of sevas grassroots members also became business correspondents they also played very active role in making sure that the government relief packages reached to the most needy in the villages who did not have the entitlements which were needed to avail of those relief packages they ensured that those entitlements were temporarily issued on a very urgent basis one of the most important and striking is how the vegetable growing small farmers got connected to the vegetable vendors in the city and the vendors then no longer remain vendors but they got e-rickshaws and they started doing home deliveries of the vegetables so the customers got fresh vegetables the farmer got better returns the vendors now had a better dignified role to play as not as vendors alone but they are delivery agents as well the farmers and the vendors online using the different applications so i think these are some of the positive things how do you turn them into an enterprise is now the next step thank you thank you so much rima uh, the next question i'm going to direct to yo and john if you'd like to share anything from your perspectives um, this question is while monitoring for impacts of covid 19 is good what are the possibilities for funding? Most projects have small budgets allocated to M&E that's not flexible. Um, Yo, would you like to share anything and then we'll turn over to John. Sure, <clears throat> maybe it's better to ask the question to Meredith actually than to me because uh, <laughs> we are facing the same problem at the uh, uh, at the Institute, of course. I mean, this is something we're working really hard with. We're working with the donors very much to see how we can repurpose some of the funding that we have to address to a lot of questions which we just didn't know uh, were there to be addressed a couple of months ago even. And of course, also the methodologies are different. I mean, so much of our work, I'm sure Claudia and Agnes can just uh, testify, was about collecting data in the field, things we cannot do today. So we're trying to work with different methodologies, et cetera. So we try to do as good as possible. And I think the donors in general have been very open to discuss these things and help us. But of course, it's not easy. Thank you. Thanks, Yo. Um, John, anything from your perspective? And then Meredith, I'll also ask you to come in here. Yeah, I mean, the way we're trying to cope with it is really to engage our partners. So for example, we've already got networks of households or other things we're working with so that we can inform them. I think um, relatively feasible and our donors have been quite flexible about doing that, but also the, the network of partners. So for example, you see Sewa with Rima and she can easily contact and find out information of all kinds of stuff if we, if we tap into those partnerships. So I think it's just a question of kind of build, a lot of these are just building on the assets we have and repurposing a little bit to get things done. Um, I see more funding needed in the kind of recovery and other things where there's additional actions, but the initial finding out of stuff, I think we can be quite creative and do that. A lot of it with existing funds, uh, but we'll hear from Meredith as well, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think there's um, definitely the recognition that um, times have changed and people can't get out into the field and do the monitoring in the same way that's been done in the past. Um, I believe that we've had some groups working on this at USAID and I 
think there is some guidance that's been posted to a website you probably can find by Googling USAID monitoring and COVID, um, especially would be around um, being able to do it in ways with less contact. Um, you know, we're looking into doing more things, obviously, through the mobile phone surveys, but also through remote sensing and, and other ways. And we've been already working in those areas, but have really been trying to quickly ramp it up and bring those kinds of monitoring tools online more quickly. Great. Thank you so much, Meredith. Um, this next question I'm going to direct to Agnes. This is from Shakira Firi, an investment promotion officer at the Ministry of Industry, Trade, and Tourism in Malawi. Uh, the question is, the studies that were cited on the impacts on, uh, were on famine as well as HIV AIDS, um, but the nature of these shocks in comparison with COVID-19 is different. Um, mm -hmm. For example, HIV is long-term. Were there any um, studies, for example, on the Ebola response, uh, which we could draw lessons from? So um, I wasn't personally involved in the Ebola studies, and so I'm sure there are there are in fact a lot of um, sort of stock taking papers like the one recently done by 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 Care USA, which um, draws on the Ebola response. So I would suggest that you read you know you, you look at that study. But the reason that I referred to the food price crisis study in the AIDS pandemic is that it was worldwide. And so um, it, I find that those types of studies illustrate very well how different the gender response is because the contexts are so different. I mean, thankfully, the pandemic response to Ebola worked and it was pretty well contained. But this COVID is just something that we haven't seen in ever, probably. Thanks, Agnes. I'm going to direct the next question to um, Claudia. Uh, this question is from Pius from FAO Africa. And the question is, is data available on gender differences um, in food security and, and perhaps with respect to COVID as well? Uh, Claudia, do you wanna jump in here? Yes, um, <laughs> is our data available? So of course, we have a lot of data from before the crisis and Meredith and others already mentioned the gender differences in um, food security. Of course, we have you know, information on childhood stunting, wasting, et cetera. There, there are very clear expectations that several of these indicators might worsen. And again, it'll be extremely context specific. Um, wasting will likely increase in many places. So how are data being collected during the crisis, which I think is, is what the question is trying to get at. Um, you know, IFRI and other organizations, World Food Program, FAO, um, they're all FuseNet. I mean, they all have their existing monitoring systems and all of these systems have to adjust um, during the food price crisis. I mean, IFRI, for example, has is trying to monitor um, actual food prices in some key markets. Um, World Food Program has its own monitoring system. So data is being generated. Not all of the data is exactly the same um, as it was before because we have, everyone has to respect local lockdown and, and other rules. Um, but data will, you know, will become available. And again, there are of course differences in the quality and the quantity of data um, as usual in some of the severe um, crisis countries where we also have a lot of conflict like Syria, um, Yemen, Libya, et cetera. So those data will remain uh, very difficult to get. But yes, so there are various organizations that do collect 
do collect this data. Um, but obviously with some delays and some adjustments. Super, thank you, Claudia. I'm going to address the next question to Maureen. Uh, this question is on the rapid gender analysis. Um, it seems vital for all of Africa. Are there feasible plans to implement this across Africa? And are they soon? <laughs> um, over to you, Maureen. Um, yes, actually, most countries in Africa, uh, in, in where our care programs, if I may say that, have done um, uh, their rapid gender uh, analysis. I was in a call with about 10 colleagues from the East, Central, and Southern Africa region who've all, uh, you know, conducted their gender analysis. Uh, one of the big questions would be, uh, so what, um, you know, after, do the, after you do the rapid gender analysis, as I said, it gives us initially, inf you know, information that we can continue to act on. But I was very, um, uh, should I say, excited to hear the plans that uh, specific countries have to take this forward. So, for instance, uh, CARE in Rwanda is working with the government on the shorter and longer term uh, economic recovery plan. Uh, from COVID. Um, in Uganda, UN Women, IRC are working together with, uh, you know, with CARE, uh, you know, to work with the government on taking that uh, forward. Um, in Malawi, um, uh, the CISANET, which is a civil society uh, organization's network, is also working together with the government. And actually, um, the government of Malawi decided to use CARE's rapid uh, and gender analysis methodology uh, to inform their plans going uh, forward. So all of these are available. On, 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 on CARE's website, and I can share the links with you, um, you know, to share with participants after the call. Wonderful. Thank you, Maureen. Um, this next question uh, is for Rima. This question is from Nopita Kumar, an assistant professor in India, and they're wondering if you would like to speak on the um, women and in, in agriculture in India with the influx of migrants from urban areas. Are there issues that you're seeing for your members, uh, for the members in Sewa? Um, yeah, uh, when we talk about women in agriculture and then the reverse migration, which has happened now um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, definitely women's role in agriculture is going to be impacted heavily. Uh, women um, may lose their uh, work in agriculture. Women may become casual laborers or more and more women would be compelled to go and work on the Monorega sites. Uh, and therefore, I think what is more important is that how do women become self-employed or entrepreneurs? How do women start their own micro-enterprises rather than just I think we lost our connection for a moment with Rima. So, okay, we have you back, Rima. Uh, did you want to share anything? I think we'll move to the next question then, and hopefully your connection is better now. Uh, the next question is for Claudia. And um, this question is on the gender digital divide and digital literacy too, whose effects will be felt now more than ever as we likely move to mobile phones and surveys. Um, and research at a time where gender disaggregated data is essential, how can we move towards closing those gaps? I mean, yeah, so as, as the, the query stated, I mean, there's a very, very large gender digital divide still out there, starting with phone, mobile phone ownership, um, 
access to um, internet services provided over the phone for the for the so-called smartphones uh, that that digital divide is even yet much larger to really address it we we have to continue starting uh, you know at, with schools so we're doing much better on female uh, primary and secondary schooling um, you know that's obviously a long-term investment that can't go away in terms of how to address things right now um, some of the messages um, that Agnes mentioned in terms of nudging um, male uh, household members, you know, often it's also the younger household members who have access to phones. Uh, we don't see as much ownership for, for elder men, for example. So to nudge uh, younger household members to share um, phone access with their mothers um, or with their older sisters to really just make it clear, you know, that we're in this together, so to say, and we all need access to uh, digital services to understand uh, news and information on COVID and to obviously, especially for women to understand where they can procure water, um, you know, water for hand washing for domestic uses, where they, food can be procured, where health services are available. So basically, I think a lot of in house, internal household communication has to take place governments, NGOs, um, and you know, civil society members like SEVA, I think they have very important roles in also uh, bringing that messaging through that for women actually to continue to play those roles uh, that they're currently playing without extraordinarily increasing their workload and, and their time use, they will have to have access um, to mobile phones. And as I mentioned, you know, it's very expensive, but uh, there have been collections of mobile phones, even in Canada, <laughs> to provide them to vulnerable women um, and to the homeless. So there are certainly things that can be done um, in other countries as well. Or just providing airtime for, you know, women's phones where, where women have uh, access to mobile phones. But it's not a process that we can, you know, we can complete this, uh, we can eliminate the gender digital divide at, during the crisis. I think we can propel um, various actors to accelerate closing the gap, but it won't happen in two months or three months. Yeah. Thanks so much, Claudia. Uh, the next question um, I'll direct to Meredith. Could you, and you spoke a bit about this, but could you share any specific actions that USAID is taking to address gender in the COVID-19 response? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, we're working very rapidly and, of course, closely with our partners um, in both redirecting programs, existing programs, as well as programming new funds. And as one example related to the um, agripreneurship that we talked about, um, USAID partners are working with food processors and developing response packages tailored to each country's situation and individual processor needs and 60% of these processes are women, to help them maintain services and overcome barriers to sourcing and distributing food while continuing safe operations that protect their workforce um, from COVID. At the village level, and I think has been mentioned, the, the VSLA, the Village Savings and Loan Associations, we're seeing in a, number of, in a number of countries, they themselves are taking actions to support themselves, um, including banding together to practice safe distancing at their meetings and to supply hand washing and sanitation supplies to their community. So those are a couple examples. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Maureen. 
I'm sorry, Meredith. Um, there are several people who have submitted questions um, that we've not had time to respond to, but I want to be careful about our time. Uh, we'd like to acknowledge some of those and, and people and thank them. Um, this is Joseph Bangnikan of PCI, Regina Matango from Malawi, Minaz, a student from Johns Hopkins, uh, Isabella from Penn State, and uh, Rehema Issa from um, South Africa, and many more. So thank you all for submitting your questions and apologies that we were not able to get to all of them. And I'd like to thank all of our participants for um, taking part in this discussion. And we'd like to give each of the speakers about 20 seconds for their final takeaway messages. So I'd like to go in reverse order, starting with Yo, and then Claudia, Meredith, Maureen, Rima, Agnes, and then John. So we'll turn over to you, Yo, to start. Thank you very much, Laura. Uh, I think this was a fascinating session. Also, the Q&A question was very, very interesting. So I want to thank very much all the panelists and the organizers of the session for uh, coming here and for organization. Uh, I also thought that the Q&A brought out many issues and open questions we still have. And so that for an organization of IFRI, of course, means it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's right. We don't have the answers yet, but at the same time, it encourages us to go forward and to try to come up with information and data and insights to provide answers in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Also, thanks to everyone uh, for really great questions and for attending this session. Um, in closing, I would like to just stress the importance on measuring and monitoring indicators of women's empowerment as the foundation for any relief and recovery operation during COVID-19. We just will generate, we could very well generate very big problems if we don't do that. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is Meredith. Um, I just want to thank uh, IFPRI for organizing this and the speakers um, who have learned a lot from each one of you. I think we must listen to women's needs, which are context specific, and also ensure we're including women in leadership response roles and use and co continue to collect sex disaggregated data to inform and continually adjust and improve our response. And I think the ProWIA that um, Claudia uh, presented has a lot of potential for this kind of learning. Thank you. Over to you, Maureen. Um, sorry. Yeah. Um, again, I'd just like to emphasize that uh, although women are bearing the brunt uh, for these and other crises, we need to recognize that uh, they are an essential uh, part of the solution. And we need to ask them as leaders, as innovators, as farmers, and as business people uh, what they need and what they want. And it speaks into what my colleagues have said on the role of data so that we can be more uh, inclusive and equitable. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. It was such a, a rich discussion. And my last few words would be that I think it's time that we all come together, south, south, north, south, the, um, you know, in the civil society, the research organizations, the government agencies. But I think we also need to look at what I would like to emphasize is local methods and approaches to rebuilding lives and livelihoods post-COVID. Thank you. 
Um, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, I'd like to pick up on what Rima said as a way to end this. I think that the local methods and approaches are really where the solutions are coming from. But for us to, for us to learn from each other, there has to be a way for us to share this information, to look at them using maybe unified metrics. I, I like the use of PROWEA to look at empowerment impacts across a wide range of projects. And I think if, if we constantly learn and bring the evidence together, we'll come up with better solutions and come out at the end of this crisis stronger. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, I, from where I sit, I see the COVID crisis in many dimensions from the kind of epidemiology, the economics, et cetera. But it's pretty clear from the discussion we've had that an essential perspective if we're going to respond and recover well, is to look through the eyes of women who are severely affected by this and to actively enable their solutions. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. And thank you again to all of our speakers. And thank you everyone for joining us online for this important discussion. We'd like to invite you to join us next week on May 28th at 9.30 a.m. Eastern for the event, No Backsliding, How Can We Reorient Food Systems and Health Systems to Protect Nutrition and Healthy Diets in the Context of COVID-19? Details can be found on IFPRI's web website. And please visit IFPRI's COVID-19 Spotlight page at ifpri.org, where you can find various research analyses and blogs, or Google IFPRI and COVID-19. Keep well and stay safe, everyone. Thank you again.